Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. Before we hop in, I wanted to introduce you to today's guest, uh, great guy, Matt Feldman, uh, the CEO and founder of Moku Foods, a plant-based jerky company. Um, they have just launched a few months ago, and Matt's story is pretty incredible, actually. Um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. We talk about a lot of different things. We go a little deeper into uh, the R&D process of you know his first year or so of building Moku Foods and trying to build a scalable plant-based product. Um, and honestly, cover the gamut with a lot of different questions and a lot of different conversations around um, you know, his ability to take this concept from zero to one. Um, if you want to check them out, you can go to Moku, M-O-K-U, foods.com. I've also added a, a link to their website in the show notes um, and check them out. They, uh, they have a pretty awesome product. I'm not going to lie. And before we jump into today's episode, uh, we got to mention you know, our partners in crime routine. Uh, if you guys haven't heard me talk about them yet, one of their newest proprietary products is called Morning Routine. Um, and it's a single serve packet that you basically just tear open, th- dump it into water first thing in the morning. You can use it whenever you want, but I, you know, they suggest, uh, and I like to use them first thing in the morning. Um, just in case you also didn't know, uh, the purpose for their product really is driven behind the fact that when we sleep, we lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, expelling vapors, sweat, etc. Each of these packets of morning routine contains a half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, some Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, one of the only ones to have no sugar out there. Um, you, like I said, you have a one tear pack mixed with 20 ounces of water. You dump it in and you drink it. It's that easy. Trusted ingredients, made convenient, routine. Um, they also have other products such as green superfoods, uh, vitamin D, apple cider vinegar gummies, elderberry gummies. Uh, personally, I also love the green superfoods, uh, especially if I'm in need of just getting some extra fruits and veggies. It's the same thing. I just take a scoop, dump it in to uh, my shaker bottle, and I'm good to go. Uh, if you guys want to check them out, go to yourroutine.com. Link is in the show notes. And for your first order, if you use Shane White 30, uh, that's also in the show notes. Uh, you will receive 30% off your first order. All right, everybody. Without further ado, Matt Feldman of Moku Foods is up next. All right, everybody. Well, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I am pumped today to have Matt Feldman on the podcast, CEO and founder of Moku Foods. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Shane. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely, man. Would you mind giving everyone just a little background into you and then obviously the brand? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Matt Feldman, co-founder, CEO of Moku Foods. Moku is a clean label meat alternative company. So we take ingredients with a clean label or clean label ingredients and turn them into products that emulate the taste and texture of meat. And we started with a plant-based jerky in December, 2020. And so we're just over three months old. 
and we're going to be rolling out some new products over the next uh, year and a half. Nice. That's awesome. Where did like the original like idea come from? Was there something you, like, was there just a need for you know, like a plant-based jerky or like, where did, where did the whole idea and the conception come from? Yeah, it started in uh, 2018. I went vegan after watching a couple Netflix documentaries and I was looking for a jerky that was soy free because I'm intolerant to soy as well as gluten. And I couldn't find one that I liked. So I started making mushroom jerky out of the house just because mushrooms had a good meat like texture. You know, they're, they're good for our bodies and the planet. And it went from that to eventually meeting Thomas Bowman, who was the head of product development at Just. And when he left the company, I, I partnered up with him uh, for about six months to make the first iterations of our jerky. And then Got from it. there, it just kind of snowballed. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Is um, Do you remember kind of like the like the first conversation you had with either fr- fr- like friends or, or close family or anything like that where um, you kind of were like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to jump in. Because I always think that on this podcast, I always like to break down kind of the zero to one of how people mm-hmm. get started. And I feel like it's really interesting uh, in your story because, uh, you know, it wasn't like you had a background in like plant-based foods necessarily. It just seemed like a passion. So how did you kind of like get to the conclusion that you're going to like go all in and start a business? Yeah. So at the time I had started a vegan meetup in San Francisco and we had about 80 people show up and I had everyone bring a snack or something to share with everyone. And I brought mushroom jerky and um, the the people there really liked it, but it's not that uh, hard to please vegans, especially with, <laughs> you know, meat, meat alternatives. They're, they're not that picky. So, um, but everyone liked it. And I was like, you know what? You know, I was working in tech at the time, not, wasn't super passionate about what I was doing. And I was looking for, to start my own business and, and into something that I, I did like doing. So it kind of just flowed naturally. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I knew I needed to hire a chef. And just fortuitously, I reached out to a bunch of founders just to network and, and get to know different people in the industry. And landed a meeting with Thomas. And once I had that meeting, you know, I knew that it was going to take off just intuitively. Yeah. Um, okay. Just because he's one of the, the best product developers in the country. Um, and then without really knowing what to do, I kind of just got from one level to the next slowly and happy to dive into it in the podcast. But um, yeah, just really took it one step at a time. Got it. Yeah. I feel like that's so important. A lot of people get overwhelmed with the idea of like, oh, I love this product that I came up with, but like, how do I get it made? How do I sell it? Like all these other things. Do you remember even like early on, like what were the first, some of the first steps? Like, was it just making good food? Was it, you know, getting out to family and friends? Like what were some of the early things you had to really accomplish? Yeah. So I think the biggest misconception for me was the fact that I thought we would go from prototype to scale. And I was dead wrong on that. Because what I figured was, okay, Thomas is going to make the best plant-based jerky in the world. And then I'm going to be able to scale this and raise money and all that. Um, But it was much tougher than that. And he did make, you know, an unbelievable jerky, but it wasn't scalable. But with that said, I didn't know that at the time, which actually helped me because I started raising some capital from, I got connected to some uh, successful founders, Thrive Market founder, Casper Mattress founder, Soylent. And a bunch of these people came in as early angel investors and supporters. Um, and I thought I would be literally be able to go to a co-packer, but I tried, you know, calling all the meat jerky co-packers and none of them wanted to work with a plant-based jerky. Um, so it literally took about a year and a half to figure out the steps to scale, scale the product out. Um, 
you know, in the manufacturing. And um, once we kind of got that down, that's when we were, I think, an investable company, okay, from, yeah. especially from a venture point of view. Um, but it took a long time to get there. What uh, early on when you were like, I mean, a year and a half, obviously for a lot of people, that's a lot of time. Were you still working full time in the tech industry while you were doing this? Or did you kind of jump in and just take savings and, and run with it? Yeah. So when I decided to start this business, I was still working full time and I put about 75,000 of my own money in and I said, let's see how far this can go. And then I basically told myself once I get to a point where we're, you know, raising capital and have momentum there and it's too much to do both, then I would move full time into Moku. Um, so about halfway into the fundraising process, we had some investors asking me why I didn't have Moku on my LinkedIn page. Ah, and that yes. was the point. Yeah, that was the point where I was like, okay, I need to, need to, you know, uh, end my tech job and, and go full, full blast into Moku. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that being a tough sell to raise <laughs> capital. And they're like, well, you're not even spending this, you're not even doing this full time, right? That was probably right. a tough conversation yeah. to have. They, they understand though. I mean, it's, it is hard to jump into something full time without being able to support yourself. Um, I think if you're transparent with the investors and you tell them that you're going to jump in as soon as you get to a certain point, um, I think it's all good. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And 75, I mean, 75 grand, that's quite a bit. I think for most people who think about starting a business on your own and bootstrapping, did you, did you early on, um, like one of the questions I always love asking is, did you want to be able to bootstrap this all by yourself and see if it was scalable? Did you always know that you probably just from looking at the business model early on that you were going to need to raise capital? Like, how did you think through some of that? And how did you decide eventually to go raise capital? Yeah, you know, before that, when I decided to do Moku, I, I was working at a company that would feed us three meals a day. So what I decided to oh, do nice. was literally break my lease and live with friends and mentors and anyone that would let me sleep in their house. <laughs> and, and I ate all my meals at the company. So I literally didn't spend a penny for eight months. Oh, wow. And all the, all the money was going to Moku. So that's it made it a, yeah, it made it a lot easier for me to, and I set time limits. You know, I said, I'm going to give myself, I forgot what it was, nine, 12 months to do this. And I'm not okay. going to stress myself out or put any pressure on myself during that time. I'm just going to go all in with Moku and I'm not working on Moku. I'm working my full-time job. So sure. um, I wanted to give myself the best shot to get to that place where we can raise money. Because I, I, I quickly learned that with a plant-based, especially a meat alternative product, we would need development capital and you know, manufacturing capital, maybe some CapEx capital. Um, it's not like a powder or a drink where it's, there's a real road to scalability. Yeah. Um, so I knew we would need to raise eventually. I didn't, I just, the thing I didn't realize was how hard it would be to make at scale because Thomas developed it to be made in a kitchen and to be made in a very scalable way, actually with like tunnel ovens and things that we probably weren't going to use early on. Um, so we had to basically, um, you know, develop the product again to be made for scale. And yeah. I can talk about, you know, why and how that happened. But basically, we were we were ma making the product out of a commercial kitchen first, and then a small co-packer, and neither one of those worked. So we basically had to go back to the drawing board. And uh, luckily, I'd raised some capital at this point. And then we, uh, we hired this guy, Ali Buzari and his team at uh, Pilot RD in, in Berkeley to uh, really develop our product for scale, which took Got about it. 10 months. 
Okay. Yeah. Could you maybe explain to everyone that? That's probably the question most people listening right now are thinking is, is why was it not scalable from kitchen to, you know, mass scale? Yeah. So like we were working with a co-packer in California at the time, and we basically handed them our formula, which Thomas developed and they tried to make it. And we did our first production run and it turned out terrible. And there were just, there were just holes in the process that we didn't really know were going to happen. And I had to call off, this was in September, 2019. I had to call off the launch, put my entire team on pause. Um, you know, had to move away from the manufacturer, um, had to tell all of our investors and everyone that was anticipating our launch that we couldn't launch. So it was a pretty tough moment. Um, luckily I had a, I had a co-founder. I still do. Uh, Melissa Facina, who she runs a, a firm called city ops, which is an outsourced operations firm. And she's much more specialized in operations than me. And she pretty much told me we need to go back to the drawing board and develop this product for scale. Cause it's not developed for scale right now. So um, she luckily had a relationship with Ali Buzari. And um, so we started working with him a few months later and he just like really went back to square zero and, and made a bunch of changes to our product um, anticipating the you know scalable nature that we would need to make the product in. Got it. Oh, it's, that's really interesting. Cause it seems like um, it seems like that's like a, a, a common difficulty with people scaling food businesses is like, once you get to the co-packing component, how many things end up coming up that you, you couldn't have even, you know, you couldn't have guessed or couldn't have known were going to come up that can throw a wrench in developing a product. Um, was there any moments even at that point when you had to like put the, the, the brakes on, I guess, for lack of better words that, um, you know, did you like second guess what you were doing and you like push through? I think it's like really good, probably inflection point for people to learn from uh, on like, what was your mindset like going through something like that? Or were you really just like confident that you could go back to the drawing board and, and figure it out? Yeah, I, I would say at no point I was, I lost confidence in it, but it was a very low moment when I literally had 2000 bags in my hand and I was at the fulfillment center. I was dropping off the product for our launch in a week and I tasted a bag and I was like, I cannot launch with this product. Like this is, uh, this yeah. is just not good enough. Um, but, and, and I think like the fact that Melissa knew Ali and, you know, I did some research on him and, and I, I was pretty confident that he would be able to, to turn things around for us and, and get the product tasting better. Got it. And that's the other thing that's been very consistent with the founders I've talked to on here is um, just the importance of good food. Like the fact that you stopped, you tasted it and you're like, this tastes like shit. I can't sell this. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's like, it's so yeah. simple, but at the end of the day, like that's really like step one, I, in my opinion of what brands, the brands that stand out and do well, it's got to taste good first. Right. And then it's got Absolutely. to have all the benefits after that. How, how different has that product that you guys are selling now transform from like the very first batch that you brought to that like vegan meetup in San Francisco? Is it like night and day, totally different product? Oh, I mean the, the batches that I was making at home, like I'm no culinary expert and I was literally just slicing portobello mushrooms, um, marinating them in a, in a sauce that I looked up online with, you know, coconut aminos and chickpea miso and basically clean label top eight allergen free uh, ingredients. Okay. And that, it was good. It was good for vegans. Yeah. Like vegans were happy with it, but no, like, you know, flexitarian or, or people that eat meat would have liked it, I think, or they okay. would have liked it as yeah. like a mushroom snack. But what I was trying to create was a, a 
meat alternative to make it easier for people to shift to, you know, a, a non-meat option. I want to call yeah. it plant-based, but you know, I guess mushrooms aren't plants, so I can't call it that <laughs> too much. Um, but yeah, basically a plant-based alternative to make it easier for people to switch to something more sustainable or, or better for their body. So um, it's night and day. I mean, even from what the first co-packer was making, like, cause Thomas developed a bacon strip, which was pretty long and it tasted more like bacon than jerky and it was really good. But when we started working with Ali, he moved to more bite-sized pieces okay. and um, kind of transforming the texture into a, a meat-like texture. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen them in person, but I mean, from the research I did online, I mean, they look, they look very similar to just like normal meat based jerky, like visually it's, I was really yeah. impressed when I saw it. Thank you. Yeah. It took over a hundred iterations. Wow. The, the hardest part was getting the texture, right? Okay. Yeah. What was the difference? Like, what was it? What was it, it was, originally? It was just a lot more moist and, you know, wet, I would say. Okay. And like, we had to go through we had to implement like three different steps to get the marinade to adhere correctly into the mushrooms and get the mushrooms to feel more like meat. It was tough. I mean, mushrooms are, you can get them to do anything you want. It just takes a lot of time. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So th- it what I think is funny too, and, and I love hearing this from founders is um, during that process, like if you look back on, on your time going through that rough development stage, would you like, was it a cool experience for you coming from like the tech world? And then all of a sudden you're like, you're in a lab trying to figure out like how to get something to be less moist. Was that like, was that a fun part of this journey that you've been on so far? So honestly, it was mostly the developers who were handling it. I was kind of there to sample product and give feedback. Um, But it was honestly a weird moment because I dove full-time into Moku thinking we were going to launch in a couple months. And we hit that point where we had to take a step back and I I had to pause my entire team and, and I I honestly wasn't busy and it was weird because I wanted to be, you know, you hear about the founders that are working 18 hours a day and, and, you know, loving it, but like super busy. And I wanted to be at that point and I wasn't because there was, Mm -hmm. wasn't anything to do. You know, we, we weren't raising, we had raised about half of our round and I was waiting till the product would get better to raise the rest. And it was just a weird moment where I pretty much had to be okay with you know, not being so busy and just like reading a book during the day or yeah. taking a, a class on Google, Google at uh, analytics or, or Facebook ads and things like that. Um, so I don't know, I guess it taught me to kind of slow down a little bit and not always have to feel busy. Um, and I knew that once I launched and we we're getting closer to launch, I would be super busy. So I think just allowing your, yourself to, you know, reach those moments where you're not going to be like crazy busy is, is a good thing. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, that's a great point. Um, you also were going through, if I, if my timeline's correct, you were going through a lot of this, like final stages, even that the component you're talking about right now, was that, that would during some of the like heyday of COVID in 2020, I'm assuming? Um, let's see. Yeah, actually it was, it was right yeah. before COVID. It was right before COVID. It was, we decided to put everything on pause, I think in January, 2020. Okay. So right wow. after that COVID happened. Which in um, hindsight, it's pro- I mean, can you imagine if you would have launched a product that you weren't, you weren't like psyched about and then hit yeah. COVID like that could have been like a death nail in the brand probably. Totally. And, and just like the, when you launch, you want the vibe to be right. You know, you yeah. want people to be excited and like people aren't going to be excited about a brand launch during 
the biggest pandemic of our lifetime. So right. it, l- looking back at hindsight, like all of the biggest pitfalls we've had, like my lowest points had been like inflections where it kind of saved the brand. They were yeah. huge blessing in disguises. And honestly, like that's taught me to when those things happen in the moment. Yeah, it sucks. But I also think back and I say, you know what? Like, I don't know if this is going to be good or bad. It could be really good. But sure. since I don't know yet, I'm not going to stress myself out. And and I'm going to try to move on from this as quickly as possible. So, yeah, no, it's like you had a great mindset. I feel like a lot of people in that moment might have like crumbled and you kind of just like stood up and like, let's fucking figure it out. You know, let's get yeah. this done. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So you and you guys, you said you launched in December of 2020. So you, you like you said, you've been up for a few months. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. We launched in mid-December on mokufoods.com. And right now we're selling on there as well as Amazon. Yeah. You're, I was going to say, I was very impressed with your online presence. That's like where my world has been e-commerce at RX bar and in other places. Yeah. Um, you guys have a fantastic website and your Amazon pages are phenomenal too. So nice, nice work there. Yeah, I was impressed. I appreciate it. I, I owe that to Gabby on our team who she was our first hire. We, she did all of our branding, our website design, all of our photography. So she's, she's been a gem for us. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So obviously you're, you're all on e-com. Has that been, have you guys, do you think you've kind of like ridden the, uh, the tailwind of like e-commerce's explosion in 2020 from COVID? I feel like that's a great time to launch a brand that's online first. It's honestly great timing. I mean, COVID has been very difficult for so many people, but one thing that it's helped food brands is kind of shifting to online uh, shopping. And I never thought, you know, people would be comfortable paying $40 for, you know, a six pack of jerky online and that to be normal. But now it is because people aren't going to the grocery store as much and their shopping habits have developed to buying stuff online. Yeah. So timing wise launching, you know, a few months ago, I think has really helped us because, you know, we get hit up every day from retailers and we're, we just don't need to go into retail yet. We're so busy with just supporting, you know, two channels online and we're going to be launching on Thrive Market in a few months. And Oh, congrats. Thank you. Um, that we don't really need to go into retail this year. See, that's powerful. That I've talked about that on here before. Um, you know, in my, my, I, I went to RX in 2017 and kind of got to experience a lot of the distribution growth that we saw, especially in like Costco, Walmart, Target, explosion on Amazon. Um, when you're a brand who in that position that you guys are in, it's just powerful because you then have a lot of the leverage when it comes to pricing, trade agreements, all the things that a lot of brands get pinched on because they want to get on shelf. Uh, the longer sure. brands hold out, it's a powerful position to be in. So good for you guys. Um, yeah, how, you. how has like Amazon and D2C, how's that growth been over the first few months? Has it been above your expectations? Has it been in line with your expectations? I'm always curious in new brands because every, every brand kind of has a new, like a different, you know, few first months of launching on those platforms. Yeah, it's, it's honestly been insane. Um, we had pretty high expectations, but it's um, exceeded those. And it's the growth has been insane. Honestly, it's reached a point now where like, we, we, we set up our manufacturing to scale pretty quickly, but we, we, we're having a hard time supporting um, the demand, especially on Amazon. We're trying to keep, you know, our Shopify from being out of stock, but Amazon has been out of stock for the last eight weeks. Oh, wow. And every time we restock it, 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 it sells out. So um, we're catching up. And that's another reason why we're not in stores and haven't launched on Thrive yet. 
Um, but I think it's a good problem to have. I mean, we can barely keep up with demand right now. That's fantastic. And I just to be curious, I'm just curious. So, you know, I feel like there's two types of brands. There's brands that are dealing with that problem and there's brands that are like struggling to grow. Do you, th- did you guys do like a lot of pre-launch marketing and like, how did you guys, how do you think you guys built the demand so quickly? There were, I think over the last year and a half, people like, uh, like heard about us, but we tried to keep a very low profile up until about two weeks before our launch. And um, I probably sent product to about a hundred micro influencers and, and athletes I knew or artists to help promote our brand during launch week. So that definitely helped. And we had a decent sized email list, you know, at launch. I think email's the most important channel, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we built up a pretty good list and we had a bunch of influencers posting for launch week. And just being in like, I think LinkedIn is super powerful, social media. Um, we had we didn't have that many followers. We had a few thousand at that point. But I think word word got around pretty quickly. Um, but there's still so many people who don't know our brand, especially since we're just online. Yeah, for sure. And do, do you have like is a lot of your marketing like very specific to either vegan or plant-based type of consumers? Or are you at this point, are you guys trying to go after like also people who are interested in meat-based products or like how are you guys kind of like thinking through the first year or so of like marketing the new, the brand really? Yeah, I mean, what's great about Facebook and Instagram is you can really uh, specifically target different groups. So there's a number of groups we're targeting, but the, the vegan and the plant-based um, audience is low-hanging fruit for us. But what's interesting is like the majority of our customers are flexitarians and they'll, you know, write us and say that, you know, they, they eat meat, but they prefer this because it tastes the same as beef jerky and it's better for the environment. Yeah. I've so, never heard that term. Is that just mean, yeah, people bounce back and forth between plant-based? Oh, and yeah. Vegan. Yeah. I've never heard that before. I think it's more just, yeah, flexitarian. Yeah, basically kind of flex between plant-based and, and meat and more of like a like conscious eating when, when they sure. do eat meat it's they, they know where it's coming from and things like that um but yeah i mean we're targeting mushroom lovers you know gluten-free soy-free vegan um you know you can yeah there's many audiences we can target on facebook yeah no that's awesome um, have you guys learned anything early on? I mean, I know you're only a few months in since you launched, but has there been any like crazy surprises that you guys have as, as a team have had to huddle together and figure out that you weren't expecting? I would say one is that the, the people who love, so on our packaging, we say plant-based jerky and originally it said, it said plant-based jerky and then it said powered by shrooms or mushrooms. Okay. And, um, we used to do like I used to do samplings um, and about a third of the people would see the packaging and say, oh, I hate mushrooms. I don't even want to try it. I was like, no, try it. It doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. And then they'll try it. Be like, oh, yeah, you're right. And also like one of my best friends absolutely despises mushrooms and he loves the jerky. So I didn't want to push people away that didn't like mushrooms. So we ended up just putting plant based jerky and the mushroom lovers get so mad at that. They oh, say, really? Yeah, they're like, mushrooms are not plants. And I'm like, well, it still fits into the plant-based diet. See, I guess I didn't uh, know that either. Like, what are they considered? It, well, they're f- fungi, so oh, they're in okay. a different yeah. kingdom. But, I mean, I don't know. It just it just seems like it wouldn't 
harm anyone but yeah the the the, the mushroom uh fanatics like are get pretty pissed at that <laughs> so who knows maybe we'll change our packaging at some point um but it's also it's also a good discussion to have um on with those facebook ads it's also it's just amazing too just like the once you get into any space the people that come out like i, I would have never i mean I, it's true i guess i knew that but i never i would when you yeah when you say mushrooms and plant-based i didn't even blink an eye i just assumed that was the same thing so there we go learn something new today yeah <laughs> um one one piece that i kind of skipped over that i wanted to bounce back to was um along the lines of you know raising capital and then having investors um for you as a founder and then just as a, a general you know team um before you had venture capital obviously you hadn't sold the product yet and i'm assuming when you're bootstrapped uh it's, your focus is probably a little bit more when you're thinking ahead like you want to grow top line sales but you probably also are really focused on profitability when it's your own just bootstrapped money right because you don't you have to make sure you're funding the business once you get capital and I, i'm sure it also probably depends a little bit on the goals of your investors in in the round but um has that changed at all for you guys? Like, are you guys still really focused on top line growth? Are you focused on profitability? Is it kind of a blend? I'd just love to hear from, from founders, like where your head is like solely focused and it could be yeah, all of them, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a great question. I think very early on, um, the only thing I knew was profitability, especially for like a food business. i I figured, you know, you have to make money on each sale. And then I quickly, you know, after talking to different people, I quickly learned that, it doesn't always have to be that way. You know, like you can go through the, the tech uh, model and, and food as well and, and just grow, grow, grow. And then, you know, eventually become profitable at, at some point. Um, but I think for us, our, our strategy is, was and is to grow and have a, a point at which we'll reach profitability. So at this point, like, especially with plant-based meat alternatives, like your cogs aren't going to be your cost of goods sold are not going to be what you want them to be in the first year and probably even the second year, but it's okay. like constant investment into the manufacturing infrastructure in order to one day, maybe a year or two down the road, get to a point where we're making this product at margins that we're very, very comfortable with. Um, but it's a road to there. So I think us knowing that we, we don't expect to be profitable this year. Um, those the unit economics are slowly getting better and better so i think there is definitely a road to profitability next year but um you know we're 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 constantly raising capital and to raise capital you got to grow so yeah um we're not really that focused on it yet but we do have it in the back of our heads and kind of have it put out on a map to be at that point eventually got it okay and what so you said i mean the the cost of goods is a great example is there anything else that's like I think it's pe people listening who maybe haven't either been a part of a food company or, 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 you know, have a finance background at all. Um, what are like other avenues? Cause I've gotten this question before is like, okay, if you sell it, sell it at an unprofitable rate today, like what are like other things that you guys are going to try to like get more and more um, efficient on in order to become more profitable down the road besides cogs or anything else that's like stands out? No, totally. I think, you know, the repeat purchase rate is the biggest thing, especially for a direct-to-consumer brand. Um, I think early on, you really have to, I mean, you have to test it out to see like how much people want to pay for your product and, and how much advertising spend you're going to put towards it. But um, understanding 
one, how much it will, it will cost to acquire a customer. And that takes a couple months. We're still figuring that out now. Um, and then waiting another three or four months to understand what that lifetime value is, is for the, a customer is also very key because that will determine how much you can spend on a customer to acquire them. It might yeah. be $15 or it might be $30. But if people are subscribing, you know, more than you thought they would, then you can spend more to acquire a customer. So it's a, it's a, it's a fine line. It's, it's kind of tricky to figure out. We haven't figured it out yet, honestly. It's something that will come over time. But I think, um, you know, cost of goods sold is one. And then understanding how many times people will buy your product over and over again is, is the second thing. Because um, paying for someone to, you're, what you're doing is you're paying for someone to buy your product. That's what Facebook and all the digital marketing channels are. Um, but what you don't know at the time, especially when you launch, is how often they're going to repeat uh, yeah. purchase. Because that's essentially a free um, cost of acquisition. So um, it's very interesting. The the whole D2C world is is very interesting. And uh, I'm definitely learning a ton in the first couple of months of it. Yeah, it's. I think it's super fun. I mean, that's why I've been in it for so long and yeah. love it. I think I always think it's interesting too the balance between um, Amazon and D2C. Would love to know your thoughts on that as you guys are early on. Um, just because, you know, D2C, like your own website, if people don't know what D2C means, um, obviously you get all of the customer data. You get their name, their email, their address, and you can figure out a lot. You can get, it's very powerful knowing all that information. But then on like Amazon, for example, you have scale. You have just this wide swath of millions and millions and millions of people who shop on it every day. So it's, but you don't get all that information. So how have you guys, how have you guys handled that? Are you guys trying to, point more people to your website? Do you care where they go? I'd love to just get where your head's at with all of that too. Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely trying to um, point as many people as we can to our website, just for the reasons you mentioned, you know, you have all that data and also you have more control over what happens with the platform. I mean, Shopify probably won't change too many things, you know, over the years, whereas Amazon can change anything whenever they want. Yeah. And you know, they have a claw over all the, the businesses that are running on there. So, um, yeah, we treat we honestly treat it like two separate businesses. We have a team that is an agency that's running our Amazon business. And most of that is from customers that are already on Amazon and, and running ads on there. And everything else, you know, influencer marketing, Facebook, Instagram ads, organic social media stuff, that's all pointing towards our, our Shopify site. And, um, we, you know, the goal is to have a, a higher percentage buying off of our website than Amazon, which is definitely the case now since we're, we just launched on Amazon and we're, we keep going out of stock, but the, the platform is so powerful. Like, you know, you, you get a bunch of customers without paying anything. Whereas on right. our website, you, you literally have to pay for each customer or else no one will find it. Um, but what's also very interesting about Amazon is they charge a 15% marketplace fee yeah. and that a lot of that gets offset by the, insane insanely low uh shipping and fulfillment costs so they're basically you're basically able to offset that and uh you know for us the and i'm I'm sure it is for for most brands like the the margins are very similar now just for that reason that like you're you're paying like 350 to fulfill and ship each order it's you can't do that with you know you know shipping out of your own fulfillment center yeah right yeah, if you can get that balance and get your your advertising to make sense over when you once you scale and, and you're up and running for a few months, yeah, it's powerful, right? I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. I guess that you know Amazon's competitive advantage. They have warehouses everywhere you open your eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's wild. Well, that's fun. I mean, I, I think the, the stage you guys are in is where it's so fun. You're figuring it out. You're growing online. Personally, it's like that you control a lot at this point, and it's, it's, it's got to be a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it totally is. It's never a dull moment. No, I bet not. Um, was, um, was, building, was building like a team, was this like the first time you've really done that, at, like from scratch, and it's your, ho- your own like organization you're building? What, was, what has that been like? Because I think for a lot of people too, like as a founder, you're, all of a sudden you have people who are becoming, you're hiring someone as an expert in you know, this area or that area, and then, and then they report to you which is, you know, probably a, another totally different challenge that most people don't realize they're getting into when they start a business. Yeah, you know, our team is very small. We have about four people. And what's interesting is they're all smarter than me in, in each area. <laughs> I'm like the newbie and like they're telling me what to do. Sure. Which is great. I mean, at this, at a company in our stage, you, you pretty much have to hire experts because I can't be telling people what to do. I'm learning it. I need someone telling me what to do and kind of owning that field. So it definitely doesn't feel like a dynamic where I'm micromanaging anyone or telling anyone what to do. It's basically like, you know, Gabby runs all of the, the design and, and, you know, uh, creatives and, and social media. So she's kind of running the show there. Sure. I'll, I'm checking in with her all the time and, and we're, we're working together a bunch, but you know, she kind of owns that area. And then Melissa's team owns the operations. Um, and they're just filling me in on what's 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 happening and getting my approval on things. But I'm kind of just hopping around to all the different areas to make sure everything is going smooth and adding my input when it's needed. Um, pretty much like like a play caller, I would say. Sure. But I'm not necessarily like the one the the one running in the touchdown. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That makes sense. Yeah, that's good. Um, obviously, you guys are early into this first product and you guys have three flavors today, right? Three. Yeah. Yeah. Three. Um, do you have, and you don't have to share anything if it's, you know, secret, but what is, is there, is there an idea after jerky? Are there other parts that you want to go after? I'm assuming the brand is probably, you know, there's more ideas in the tank that you guys haven't launched yet. No, totally. And, and jerky is just the first product. Um, like I mentioned in, in the beginning, like we want to be the, the clean ingredient meat alternative company. So Love that. That's cool. you know, that, you know, when you look at impossible and beyond, like, yeah, they're great, but their label isn't great. It's, you know, they compromise on, on health first and we want to not compromise on health or taste and, you know, create products that do taste like meat, but, you know, have clean ingredients in them that people can pronounce. So jerky was a, a great first product for us to, you know, get off the ground. It's, it's very easy to ship lasts very long. So we were able to, um, you know, have a presence online, but we're definitely working on other products where we just kicked off like an innovation pipeline project um, where, where we'll be, you know, planning out which products we launch over the next year and a half to two years. And we just launched a, a beta bacon bits product at Goop Kitchen in LA on their Cobb salad. Nice. So it's, it's kind of similar to our jerky, but smaller pieces and, and crispier. Um, but yeah, mushrooms are incredible. They can, they can do many things and um, there's definitely a lot of meat alternatives they can make, but yeah, mushrooms are, are the ingredient that we're using now. We're, we're not kind of, we're not going to only use mushrooms, but, um, they're, they're amazing. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have a lot to learn about mushrooms after this podcast. I need to like do it, <laughs> do a little more due diligence and understand what's, you know, what's all involved. Cause 
it's, it's pretty cool that, you know, you're able to find a product um, and build like a whole, basically like a whole new product off of it. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, we're not the first mushroom jerky, but um, we definitely, I think we spent the, by far the most time working with probably the best experts and really getting them to taste and, and look like meat. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, at the beginning, I was really impressed. I'm like, Oh, that like legit looks like meat jerky. Like that's, yeah. that's super impressive. Do you have people that I'm sure you probably did some of this. Do, do you have people who like, you know, blind taste test? Can they tell, a, can you even, can you tell a difference? Like how close does it taste to meat based jerky? Yeah, I would say you can probably tell a difference, but it's not that far off. That's pretty impressive. Um, I mean, just I'm general. not the best one. I haven't eaten meat in four years. So, oh, wow. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah, but um, there, I mean, there are people that leave reviews and email us every day that say, wow, like I literally can't tell the difference between this and, and beef jerky. Um, it also depends on what kind of beef jerky because there are so many different types now. Okay. And ours, because ours isn't as tough as beef jerky, we wanted to make it easy for people to eat. And um, so some people are really used to like the really tough jerky where it's like hard to bite, um, where ours is a little softer than that. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, knowing that, you know, you guys obviously have, you've raised capital and you're, you have some investment backing. Um, one thing I always love to ask, because there are kind of like two different paths. A lot of food brands tend to go down just in general, one being hopefully you scale to a point and you can exit, right. Whether that's selling to a big CPG company or or whatever it may be, or some like to like potentially build like a long-term I don't like to say family business. I feel like sometimes it's a bad connotation of being small, but like, cause there's huge ones, but just a private enormous business. That's like for you guys, plant-based like empire. Do you kind of have like a direction that you, you guys as a company are kind of heading in long-term or you kind of trying to figure it out? Yeah. I mean like this, like Moku is kind of reflects my lifestyle. It's, it's everything that I enjoy. So it's definitely something that I would totally be happy doing, you know, in five, 10 years from now and, and be sure. totally fine, you know, building out that, you know, clean label plant-based meat empire. But um, I think along the way, there will be opportunities to get acquired. And for me, like what's important is if that does happen, that it's, you know, companies that do reflect our values and align with our ethos and not just someone that will pay us a big sum and be totally different and, and kind of um, not, implementing the best practices with some of their other products. So, um, I mean, in today's environment, it's also so different than it was three years ago, you know, know, right. When, when RX bar, you know, got acquired two or three years ago, I can't remember, but like now brands are going public with like 12 million in revenue and, and, you know, and private equity swooping up brands super early. So I think like for now it's, we don't even worry about that. We're just building our brand you know, sticking to our, our values and, and having fun with it. And then whatever happens eventually we'll, we'll entertain everything. And, you know, we, I think our, our team and our board is, is very aligned and, you know, we'll, I think we'll make the right decision whenever that happens. Love that. I think the, the, the key there and what I took away was the, you know, you love what you're doing and it's like your lifestyle. I, I just, from talking to a lot of founders now, you can definitely pick up on two different vibes. It's like that where like, you, it's just passion. Like you just wanted, you've wanted to create this and there's, you've got everything put into it uh, versus someone who's like trying to build a brand for the sake of selling a brand. Very different mindset, different direction. And honestly, like the hurdle you guys ran into uh, in 2019 
slash 2020, like that, that doesn't usually come out the success usually doesn't come out the other end. I don't think when you're, when you're trying to build a business for the sake of selling a business. Um, right. So, you know, hats off to you guys. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I feel like one of our advisors told me this early on and it didn't really make sense to me, but he basically said, he's like the, the successful founders are the ones that I guess, or, or the, the, the founder, the entrepreneurs who build successful brands are either the ones that, you know, got lucky the first time and are, are doing it, you know, know what they're doing the second time, or they have no idea what they're doing. Right. And right. they kind of operate at that level where like, they, they, they don't know what they don't know. And that actually helps them because they don't know how hard it is. Sure. And that was kind of where I fell into. Like, I think for someone that has been in the food industry for a long time, they know the road and they know how hard it is to get from zero to one and one to two. And it probably stops them from starting their own company. Whereas me, I'm like, oh, I'll make a great jerky. And then we'll be selling to hundreds of thousands of people because it tastes super good. Yeah. It's like, no, that, that's not how it works. But hey, you know, I was naive in the beginning and I learned o- over time. But, you know, luckily I was uh, I was kind of clueless in the beginning and just kind of kept my head forward and just kept driving. Sure. No. And I think I think there's a, there's probably a fine balance because I've now been on all sides of it where it was like, you know, RX before RX was acquired. I obviously now work really closely with a lot of people at Kellogg. So you were, you mm-hmm. see, you see both sides. Like there's, you know, I feel like there's pros and cons. Like definitely there's some processes and things that yeah. working at a big CPG company for a long time can really benefit and maybe avoid some like pitfalls or, you know, hurdles that you don't need to hit. Sure. Um, but at the same time, sometimes the, then there's also this like in the back of your head, just like there's one way to do things, which obviously there's right. not. So right. probably have the benefit of that too, of like, hey, I'm just figuring it out and we'll, we'll, we'll make do with what we got kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, so th- this is like my last founder question. Love this one since and I'm, I'm pumped to hear what you say, because especially since like your passion about this obviously is, is through the roof. Um, after your time at Moku Foods is done, what would you like to be like remembered for in the food industry? Just like, what was it that Matt Feldman was known for at Moku Foods the most? I'd say just like creating a product that made it easy to shift to, you know, a plant-based alternative or, you know, in plant something in the plant-based diet. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of other things I want to do, you know, that doesn't have to do with selling food products, but I think just making it easier for people to shift to something that is better for, you know, both our body and the planet. Got it. No, I love that. It's like not complicated, but it's super impactful. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Um, a few of the last questions I love to ask everyone because we've gotten a good list now. Um, I always say book, but it could be book, podcast, just source of knowledge. Um, if you had to suggest one book to the audience, what would that be? Oh, I'm really into like the the psychological books as opposed okay. to like, you know, food and, and business books. Um and Dr. Joe Dispenza is one of my favorite people. I listen to a lot of his audiobooks, um, and and I think it really, it's it's really about like how our thoughts kind of impact our actions and our our mood and our personalities and things like that. And one of my favorites was "You Are the Placebo" um, by Joe Dispenza. I think, but I think all of his books are are excellent. Okay. And then and then the Four Agreements were all, was also a great book. Both have nothing to do with food or business. 
but it can definitely apply to any industry and, and anybody. What was the last one called? The four, uh, the four, four agreements. The four agreements. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Sweet. I will share these these out. That the, I, those are two that I have never heard of, so I'm, I'm pumped to have those. I appreciate that. Right on. Um, so the other thing that I think is really important, and it's just fun to ask because everyone's different. Obviously, with trying to you know run a business, there's a million different things going on. Um, what tools do you use to you know track and accomplish goals, even daily tasks? Are you like a pen and paper kind of guy? Do you have apps you use? Like, what is it that you use to like just get shit done? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty simple. I I have a a Google Docs to do list that I use and just check off things. And but more more so than that, I use a pen and paper and write things down and cross it off. Like that goes a long way for me. Yeah. Same. And I can probably, I can probably be more organized with some of those more sophisticated tools, but so far Google and pen, pad and paper has worked for me. You know, it's funny. Um, I have talked to, like I said, quite a few founders at this point. And I, before talking to all of them, I had this like inclination that every successful founder must just be like super organized. They know what to do, when to do, and they're just crushing everything. I can't tell you, I bet 95% of the founders I've had are like, oh no, I have like a pen and paper and I might have like a Google doc. Like that's probably what most have told me, which I think yeah. is really interesting. It's, to me, that also allows like probably a lot more creativity than someone who's just like, I mean, to be honest, I'm probably a little bit too like, you got to do this when I do this very planned out. Yeah. Um, but it's funny. I think it's very common with with entrepreneurs in general and founders is having a little bit of just like, yeah, he's pen and paper or it's here and it's just, I figure it out and go, keep going. Yeah. I, I would definitely love to be a little more in order like yourself and I'll get there at some point, but for now I'm just kind of always on the go and like things come up all the time and um, you know, the pen and paper works well for that. Do you think there is something to be said about that last part too, just about like um, kind of just always going, like always trying to like, you know, answer things or, or move the needle a little bit. Sometimes I think that's just like a simple thing that like founders almost have to do because there's so many things going on sometimes, but yeah, maybe something about like less planning, just more doing. Yeah. I think at this stage when I'm still touching like almost every part of the business, um, it's hard to have a, a strict schedule because if an email comes up or a support ticket comes up, that is important. Like I have to be there to answer it. Um, but I think once you get to a point where you can hire people to, you know, cover those tasks and I can focus on vision and fundraising and PR, which is what, you know, most CEOs and growing companies focus on. Um, I think then you can be a lot more organized in, in the things you do. Sure. But at this yeah. point it's, it's kind of wildfire. And um, I try to just like keep a, a balanced lifestyle so that I don't go crazy. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what do you, how do you do that? How do you kind of keep a balanced lifestyle? Do you have any suggestions for listeners? Um, I surf every day when, when I'm back in Hawaii and that kind of helps me unplug from technology. And when I'm out there, I, I don't think about work at all. I'm just thinking about the next wave that's coming in. Sure. So that helps a lot. Um, play basketball as much as I can with friends and and I'm not great at this. I'm trying to get better, but just having a morning routine, like it's so easy to just get out of bed and jump on your email. Yeah. But to have a transition from sleep to work and I try to do, you know, something that makes me sweat. So maybe a little workout, like even a 10 minute workout, a little cold plunge in the shower and then a meditation and then get to, uh, get to work. That's my go-to. It's just Love hard it. to stick with it every day. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried religiously probably I'd say the last month I try and I've, I've probably failed most days, 
my morning routine is like I try not to look at my phone for the first hour and just like plan my day out a little bit, meditate, stretch, um, just do some of the journaling stuff. It's tough though. It's just, it's, you wake up with notifications and your brain's just yeah. fire. So it's like, I almost yeah. need to like not use my phone as my alarm and just keep it plugged in, like in my right. in here in my office. So that way I just don't even have a choice. Um, right. But I'm with you. It is. It's like it, we've, we've gotten to a point where we can do so much with our phones, but then we're also yeah. like, slaves to our phones if we don't control totally. it so it's crazy yeah it's, man. it's so true You're, you can literally always be on your phone answering emails and be so out of touch with society yeah um so definitely need to create for me personally i need to create strict rules for like unplugging yeah especially when i'm with like family and friends like i can't be on my phone answering emails or else i'm just not in the moment with them so right it's tough, right but it is tough i know i've tried to do like the no notifications on emails but then you end up missing something you're like shit i need to have I need to be able to see what's coming in. It's tough. It yeah. is. It's, no one's, I don't think anyone's like fully figured it out yet. Right. Yeah. Um, sure. It'd be like the next big thing. Um, <laughs> the, the most important question and for everyone listening and I'll, I'll make sure to add all this to the show notes is uh, how can people follow along with your journey? How can they follow Moku foods and how can people try it or what's the best place to try it? Yeah. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, Matt Feldman. Um, on our social media channels for Moku are at Moku Foods on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and you can try the product on mokufoods.com and also on Amazon. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you get to enjoy the rest of your time down there in uh, really the Caribbean, I guess. And then uh, enjoy yeah, your time back so much, in Hawaii, Shane. man. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure being on here. Look Absolutely. I'll let you know when it's all up. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you and good luck with Moku Foods. I'm excited to see what you guys do, man. Thanks so much, man. Good awesome. luck with everything. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Awesome. See ya.